welcome to In the Weeds with Nicole Asquith, exploring the way culture shapes our relationship to the natural world. All right, is it recording now? Yep, okay. Whew, it's been a while. In fact, quite a while since my last episode. I wish I could say it was because I had a long holiday or that I was off doing some important research, but as you might suspect, it has more to do with these strange times we're in. My kids have been home full-time for the past six months, and now that school has started again, well, honestly, it's not that different. School, two days a week. So, things are not exactly normal, but nonetheless, I'm eager to pick up where we left off. Today's episode features an interview I recorded back in May with novelist Joe Wallace. Before taking up fiction, Wallace was a science writer for numerous publications, including Sierra and Audubon. He also wrote a couple of books for the American Museum of Natural History, including A History of Dinosaurs. In our conversation, we talk about the first of his pair of apocalyptic novels, Invasive Species, which is followed by Slave Makers. Inspired by his career as a science writer, Wallace takes an unusual approach to the apocalyptic novel, incorporating real-life natural phenomena from parasitic wasps to zombie ants to something called the hive mind. In Invasive Species, we meet Trey Gilliard, a biologist Indiana Jones, who first suspects that something is wrong when he discovers sections of dying forest in the Casamance region of Senegal. Soon after, he encounters a new predator that threatens the dominance of the human species. In preparing for my interview with you, I was doing some research on various insects and biological phenomena that you refer to in your book. And I went down this, I was going to say rabbit hole, but it was more like an ant hole, really. <laughs> I like um, that. <laughs> and my, so my, I was working with my daughter who was doing her math, but at the same time I was watching a David Attenborough documentary mm-hmm. about ants. And so I would, you know, make her do two math problems and then she would get to watch like oh. five or 10 minutes of the ant. <laughs> documentary with me I love it was that. kind of delightful you know yeah and and plus you know David Attenborough is like a hero of mine I mean I always oh, wish that so I'd good. had the chance to interview him because you know I mean how long have I been watching the documentaries that he's been part of and narrated it's just an extraordinary you know life history life he's had yeah. um but yes the talk about you know in this case you know as he said you know and Ant hole, ant, ant hills, ant holes. Um, it's, I mean, I probably learned that. Obviously, you know, I knew it beforehand, or I probably wouldn't have chosen what I did for the book. But just the, the sort of extraordinary complexity. It's just so fascinating and so alien that to me, I could, I could plunge into that. You know, easily just find that hours went by just you know pursuing one strand of it. It's really a remarkable thing. Yeah, well, well, you know, I've interviewed Doug Tallamy a couple of times, yes. and now I'm, you know, reading your book, where one of the main characters is, is an entomologist, right. and uh, I feel like the more I learn about this stuff, the more yeah. I feel like all of us should be learning a lot more about insects than we are. <laughs> I agree, and the funny thing is, is that when I was doing my, um, the second of the two books I did with the Museum of Natural History back, boy, almost 20 years ago now, the one hall they did not and do not have at the Museum of Natural History is they don't really have a bug hall. They have special exhibitions, they have bugs scattered throughout, you know, insects, but 
I, I would talk to the curators there, and especially the head of the department, and he was just seething with resentment. You know, he's like, there's more entomologists in this museum than there are any other kinds of scientists. There's more, like, you know, because he felt like they just weren't being given, that he thought they were easily much more fascinating than, you know, I don't know, mammals or something, and yet they didn't get the respect, which always stuck in my head because, you know, here we have these things around us that are incredibly crucial to life on Earth, incredibly alien and at the same time it's like we don't really know anything about them still yeah and i i always think that with children especially that they should spend more time studying animals and life forms that are within arm's reach as it were you know i think that there's this temptation to study the the you know, African savanna or, or, or the tropical rainforests, which are these very rich, fascinating yes. ecosystems. But then it really gives one the sense that nature is something exotic and, you know, not immediate to our experience. Whereas, you know, if you discover what exists in your backyard, it, it, I think it promotes a different kind of relationship. I, I, I think that's, that's, extraordinarily true and i grew up i mean amazingly i grew up in in brooklyn but it was a part of brooklyn where we had a tiny front yard and backyard and and obviously it was also brooklyn a long time ago when there was more diversity of you know i don't know i actually think that the air quality was better it's probably better now but there was it was maybe a little less built up and and at least on our in our area it was all just you know two-story houses so there was a sky but just our backyard was just our little jungle interesting insects praying mantises and interesting butterflies and as well as birds stopping by and that's what i focused on almost more i dreamed of africa but for me it was what we were discovering as you said under rocks and i think maybe that's part of my fascination as well as you just don't have to go very far so is is that how you became a, a science nerd was by lifting up logs and and looking under stones and things in your own backyard yeah i think that's probably it my older brother was the same and my father was a, was an enthusiastic amateur well i don't know about an amateur naturalist but he was really interested in the outside world as well i mean he was a bird watcher and that's where i got my love of birding from and and my older brother and I just you know in the summers we had a house on uh, Cape Cod and so there was snorkeling and setting up an aquarium just for the summer you know just to keep alive some of what we had caught. So based on things I've read I also get the sense that you've had an interest in apocalyptic end of the world stories for a long time where does that come from? You know that's actually a really good good question because I would have said that almost nothing that I've written, both short stories and novels, have necessarily fallen into the category of genres that I would have thought I would have been as the most interested in. My short stories have almost all been mystery stories and noir, and I like mysteries, but I don't read that many short stories. I just love composing them because the structure is so interesting. And as far as I read a lot of science fiction growing up, but I actually wasn't that fond of this sort of apocalyptic post-op apocalyptic um, subgenres of that, I think what ended up happening with invasive species and slave makers, the paired ones, I was so fascinated by nature and fascinated by the idea that we think of ourselves as being this all-powerful, super-powerful, exceptional species, while a lot of reading I did, as well as my own beliefs, 
made me think that we're actually just another highly advanced species, prey to some of the same threats and the same arc of existence, if I can be a little um, pretentious sounding, that has struck every species. And that therefore, when I sort of put together those thoughts, I was like, okay, I kind of want to see what it's like to create a world in which we're not like at the top of the totem pole and quite so self-confident already. And then it all that part just suddenly became something I became sort of obsessed with portraying. But it really started with a more of a belief based on my science and nature writing and my paleontological writing, you know, my writing about dinosaurs, because that, you know, has shown me that there have been super powerful species that have dominated life on Earth that don't necessarily last. And so then it was just a matter of telling that story in a way that seemed like satisfying for me to write and also for people to read. So going specifically then to invasive species, in the opening, there's an author's note in which you give an explanation of what inspired the story. So I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'll read it quickly. Of course. You write, the vignette I remember most vividly involved a wasp, a two inch long tarantula hawk named for the spiders it would paralyze to feed its young. The author was lying on a deck chair watching the enormous wasp drag its paralyzed prey around its lair. Three times the author poked at the wasp with a stick, wanting to see if the tarantula, left alone, would revive. The first two times, the wasp rose in the air and circled around before returning to its prey. The third time, however, it made a beeline straight to a spot three inches in front of the author's face. Lying back in his chair, he was helpless. If the hawk had wanted to unleash its excruciating sting or bite, he couldn't have stopped it. Instead, the wasp just hovered there, staring into his eyes. The message was clear. I'm giving you another chance. You do that one more time, though, and you're dead meat. Isn't that a great story? I mean, it's and the, my favorite part of that story is that I have never, ever again been able to find the story itself. And I have looked online. I think I remember the author's title, the author's name. I think I remember the essay title, but it never comes together and it doesn't lead me anywhere. I know I didn't make up the story or dream it, but it really brought home to me as much as as anything the idea that there are other minds out there and that even though we don't necessarily comprehend them, it doesn't mean that they don't exist. And then when you add the fact that we are, in fact, a pretty vulnerable species and when we don't have our poisons and buildings and weapons and, and things like that, the way that story sort of illustrates that is, is very powerful to me as, as well as very satisfying because I actually... And I guess now that I think of it, it was inspirational because the whole purpose of my book is to knock our species down a peg or two. And that's certainly what that that anecdote does. Yeah, and you say something about, you know, these two apex predators encountering each other. And I, I, I do find one of the most interesting parts of your book to me is the attempt to imagine other forms of thought, for lack of a better word, other beings, you know, and the idea that that human beings could have some kind of experience or encounter. And at one point in your book, that happens to your main character. In fact, he gets to experience something of what the wasp's sort of consciousness is like. Yes. And to me, it's a very sort of, again, you know, compelling 
idea, and it was maybe more more importantly, it was a lot of fun to write because I tried to make everything about the buildup and the, the, the sort of establishing structure of this book scientifically accurate. The, the concept of what parasitic wasps do, the complexity of what the venom is like, the way parasitism works. And one of the things I found out just recently, because I, something occurred to me to look it up, is that scientists estimate that there are at least one million species of parasitic wasp out there in the world. It is an extraordinarily widespread adaptation, and undoubtedly that number is is an underestimate because we don't know how many wasps, I mean, insects in general, are, are still not that well identified and named. So to me, it's something that has worked extraordinarily well, and there's a reason why it works. And then when you hear about what some of the effects of parasitism on the, on the creatures that are parasitized, it is fascinating to me, as is the fact that science has a lot of trouble figuring out how it's happening. In one of the other books that I refer to that was an enormous influence on this book is a book called The Red Hourglass by the author's name is Gordon Grice. It's a ser- series of essays on predators. Red Hourglass represents black widows, but he also deals with rattlesnakes and he deals with pigs and just a lot of different animals each in its own essay and he talks about tarantula hawks as well and he says that it is a recognized phenomenon that they will coax a tarantula out of its burrow and then they will do something to it that does not involve stinging or biting they will do something that basically puts it into thrall And then they will go, they will fly away, and they will dig their burrow, and the tarantula will stay where it is. It has not been stung, it has not been bitten. They don't know whether it's a chemical effect or some sort of mesmerism. They do not know, or at least they didn't when he wrote this essay. And then when it's done preparing its home, it will go back, find the tarantula that's waiting there that will kind of wake up, then it will sting it, paralyze it, and then it will carry it back. We don't know how that phenomenon works. And I find that not only fascinating, but kind of encouraging. I don't like that we feel like we know everything because we just don't. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. I have that same feeling. Our knowledge sometimes feels rather superficial, and, and I find that reassuring on some level. <laughs> I do, too. Um, so, you know, one of the fun things about your book, what you're describing makes me think of it, is that you have a scientific basis for a lot of the tropes of uh, apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic fiction, one of which is the zombie, right? So you have your version of the zombie, but it's it's not the sort of traditional, you know, dead right. body <laughs> being on Earth. <laughs> right. uh, but it's a version that that is based on. There's a is a fungus that can affect ants and turn them into effective zombies. Yes, and it's it, it's mostly that's mostly a fungal phenomenon which basically infects their you know takes over their brains and as i'm sure you've read or watched they'll do amazing things like ground dwelling ants that will have walked through the spores will end up climbing to the tops of bushes fastening on and then dying because the fungus wants to when it produces its next generation of spores it wants an ant that's up as high as possible because then the spores spread. So somehow it has succeeded in figuring out a way to compel the dying ant to climb to the top of a bush. 
honestly, I might write about things like this, but that doesn't keep me from feeling kind of a little queasy at the idea of something. That <laughs> yeah, can, no like, 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 I am not immune. I mean, it's very funny because I can, you know, I always have to say to people when they read one of my books and say, you know, oh, that was so horrifying. And, you know, some scene from it. And then I have to remind myself that they didn't write it. So they, they're reading it and seeing it fresh. For me, it was the words on the page. So I don't feel that way. When I take a step back and describe it like I'm doing now, I'm like, ooh, that's kind of gross. But, <laughs> but, but the truth is, it's also, again, really fascinating because I don't really remember what the fungus, but in general, and it's, the ability to command and turn your prey into something that will do your bidding is fairly widespread in parasitism. And that's, that to me, that's really an extraordinary, um, phenomenon because it's evolved to do that you know it isn't just a side effect of the, the parasitism it's part of the process and it's, it's funny because i you know i've been listening to your pieces i've listened to one of them before and caught up on the other but on you know apocalyptic thought mm -hmm. and i know that i sort of brought the zombie phenomenon in but it was fascinating to hear that we, the way we become sort of have become sort of obsessed with that and that i even though i would have sworn to you going into that book that one of the reasons I'm doing it this way is so I don't do that. I ended up with sort of humans that have been controlled in a way that's not that different from the zombies you find in other, you know. Well, what I, I felt to me, there was a playfulness in your book that way where you make a, a lot of references to popular culture. And in some ways it's like, this is familiar territory, but there's other ways in which I feel like you subvert the genre as well. And I'll get to that more when we get sort of further along. But one example is there's a reference at one point to the invasion of the body snatchers. <laughs> when you're, you're talking about yet another natural f phenomenon that you exploit, which is this idea of the hive mind, yeah, right. which is also totally fascinating. This idea of a consciousness that is spread throughout multiple organisms. Yeah. So do you want to talk about that a little bit and sort of how you came upon that? And Yes, because I, I guess it's, it's, it's very interesting to me talking about this in this way, because I think in some way I'm getting a clearer picture of what interests me the most and therefore what I want to play with or use in, in, in my stories, because I think it all comes down to the things that prove how we don't really understand how things work in nature except the things that are simplest that we then use as examples of how we sort of, you know, understand everything. And the fact is the hive mind exists. It doesn't just exist in, you know, bees and ants. It exists to some level in schools of fish, you know, the, the, the ability to, to almost turn as one. I mean, there are things going on there in my belief that aren't easily explicable by, oh, the first one takes the visual cue from this one. And if they are, where's the dividing line between a hive mind and the ability to instantaneously process information and therefore act as one creature, even if you're, you know, hundreds or thousands of them? It's an interesting, or to my mind, fascinating phenomenon, and one that, as I, this book sort of developed in my head, I wasn't sure how I wanted to use the concept of the hive mind but it ended up being really crucial to not only this book, but to sort of my, you know, my belief in this and then again in, in Slave Makers, the follow-up, that both the weakness and the strength of humans is their lack of understanding of the threats they're facing, but also the individuality that helps them sort of overcome that and battle that. 
And to me, that's a very rich topic that gets at how little we know and how much we can learn from the things that we don't know yet know. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the setting of your book. I'll just say, as a bit of a side note, in these coronavirus times, <laughs> one of yes. the things that I really enjoyed about reading your book was getting to travel to all these different places and that feeling of adventure. Your main character, Trey Gilliard, he's this sort of environmental Indiana Jones who travels to remote parts of the planet off-grid and, and learns all kinds of things about the ecosystems. Vicariously, it was so much fun to imagine that kind of lifestyle, you know, the ability to travel, first of all. And Yes. So a simple question I had is, um, are you familiar with some of these regions you talk about? So it, the book starts in Casamance region of Senegal. Have Have you been there? What, what <laughs> yes. inspired you to, uh, I, <laughs> to say I mean, there? the reason I'm laughing is that when people say, how did you choose such a strange assortment of places to set your book. And my easy answer is, I just chose all the places that I got the chance to visit during my early career. And then also in the and the fact is, that's really the truth that, you know, it's a two part, maybe a three part, though short three part answer. My first novel, this was Invasive Species is my second. And my first one was published after, you know, I was pretty old. I mean, I was past 50 when, when Diamond Ruby, my first novel came out. And that was a historical novel set entirely in Brooklyn and all through the eyes of a single character. It's not a first-person novel, but it's, it's limited third-person, which means that every scene is seen through her eyes. Like, if, if she didn't see it, it didn't happen. So when it came time to write my second one, even though many authors are encouraged to write the same sort of book again to sort of build a reputation, I was like, I've waited a long, long time. I want to write a book contemporary set all around the world told by many different narrators and see if I can do that too. It's so different. And then when I sort of thought that and started thinking about the basic plot structure of invasive species, I thought, okay, if I'm going to set it around the world and I will not have the time or money to pick up and go to all the places I might want to set it, where have I been that I can portray vividly because I saw them and remember them that will also work for this. And what I loved about the Casamance, Sharon and I went there, it was actually a trip for work that she took, and I went along to, to Senegal. And the Casamance was fascinating because it's very different than the rest of the country. It's actually separated from the rest of Senegal by a, another country. This is what happened with colonialism. Senegal is French. The Gambia is English and is shaped, you can see it on a map, it's shaped like a pencil and it splits Senegal in half. And the southern part of Senegal, below the Gambia, is this wild, not, it's, at least when we were there in the 1980s, it was an animist region. It was not a, either a, a Muslim or Christian region. It was an animist region. It felt unlike anywhere else we'd ever been. It felt wilder and stranger. And it seemed like an ideal place where science hadn't gone and people were living and nobody was going. I don't even know if anybody, you know, visits there now, you know, as, as tourists. But to me, it felt like a wonderful epicenter for where this went. So, and then as far as, you know, some of the rest of the scenes, Australia and stuff, I would just pick a place that seemed smart to me, like it worked, but I could also mm -hmm. see it in my head. And so, yes, that's, a, I agree with you. I mean, I, when I've been looking over the book preparatory for this interview, I was like, oh. 
I want to get on an airplane and do all those things again. It's just it's also loaded now with climate change too. I know. I know. I feel like one has to be much more thoughtful about how much one travels. So speaking in a different way about this global aspect of your story, the national governments don't come across very well. (laughs) (laughs) Governments in general come across as pretty sinister. Um, They basically try to cover up the news of the wasp story, which I have to say resonates. Isn't Um, it amazing? (laughs) the, The amount of echoes, you know, like there's one joke at one point about how the people who produce bottled waters love apocalypses because they really profit. I'm like, yep, check, you know. <laughs> um, I had forgotten I put that in there. That's really funny. I was I was thinking clearly. The heroes in the book are really the scientists and they eventually form this international group. And that seems, you know, a version of that is playing out now as well. When you see, for instance, the development of vaccines, you know, governments have a vested interest in maintaining controls over that and being able to, you know, be the first country to distribute them and so on. But scientists are very much not operating that way. They are operating across national borders and really have much more of a global perspective. I I agree. And and governments have a vested interest in keeping themselves in power, which in a case like this seems to represent itself far too often as an initial instinct to, or not only an initial instinct, an instinct to make the threat sound less than it is because the greater the threat is, the more obvious it is. And logically and rationally, and not even critically, that it's how much harder it's going to be to truly manage. And therefore, if you somehow, if you pretend it isn't so bad or that it's over with, that people will love you more, which seems crazy to me, But it seems like it plays out this way, and climate change is an absolutely perfect example of that, though obviously it's a far more complex issue than anything I could deal with in a novel. But I do think that what is wonderful about science and scientists is that on some level, they just don't care about stuff like that. They've got this clear-eyed view of what's going on that I admire. My parents were both physicians. My father, especially research, was his, you know, he was a had patients, you know, all the time. He loved working with with the patients he had, but he also did a lot of research. And, you know, regardless of political leanings, it's all about the facts you're finding out. And I find that that kind of thrilling. And that's why I've loved writing about science and interviewing scientists and creating them in books like this. Hmm, That's interesting. You mentioned earlier that one of your goals with this novel was to take humans down a notch. One way you could read your novel is as nature sort of getting its revenge on the human species. Was that part of your intention as well? Or how, how, or a broader question would be, how do you see your novel as a reflection of the relationship between humans and other creatures? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I see it less as nature getting its revenge and more as us being just another part of nature and therefore getting taken down a peg as a an inevitability. I, one of the things that also informed my wanting to create this book was, was as I might have mentioned, my work on the, the sheer amount of time I spent writing about ancient creatures, all of which are now extinct. And there's a, 
a wonderful quote that I actually pulled out here, and, and you know, it's a lo- from a long article, and I think it might have started as a speech, but it was written by a guy named W.D. Matthew, a leading paleontologist, paleontologist, dinosaur specialist at the Museum of Natural History in New York. And he said, it, there's just a line or two that says, do you wonder that the paleontologist, absorbed in contemplation of his splendid edifice, walks a little apart from the ways of men, that the little personal affairs and interests of the fleeting present, which make up the world of his fellows, seem to him but gewgaws and trifles of no importance. Now, absent the, you know, taking away the he and him and men, that perspective, the one that says that all life on earth is transient, all species life on earth is transient, makes me especially interested in the concept that we are, in fact, transient ourselves, which we are, though, you know, I don't mean it's going to happen because of an apocalypse. And therefore, what I wanted to do in this book was, and in the one that followed, was sort of explore that idea, take the step back and say, okay, working on the assumption that we're just another rather extraordinary species in good and bad ways, and see what happens when we're not, when we're at a different part of the arc you know, we've been all powerful for, you know, some thousands of years now. And to me, that's that, that that's kind of a very moving thing because nature will continue to exist if and when we're gone. We, we do not have the ability to stop that from happening. And so what's our relationship to it now as opposed to the relationship we believe we have in it? And I think that might lie at the very heart of, of why I chose to write the books I did. You know, it's it, it's it's a... It's a much more complex and I find almost spiritual question here. And it starts by taking the perspective that W.D. Matthew had. Take a step back you know, and see where we stand in this sort of history of life on Earth. I don't know. This small pound sounds probably a little bit high flown, but. No, no. I mean, that's one of the reasons I really enjoyed. I don't know if you listened to my episode with Mar- Marcia Bjornrud. She's a geologist and, you know, she thinks in terms of millennia. She's very smart. No, I missed that one. I will definitely look that up. Yeah, and it, it, I always find it enriching to talk to her because she just has such a profoundly different perspective. Her most recent book is, among other things, A History of the Earth. And what's fascinating about it is that you think of the Earth as being relatively static, hmm. but not only does she you know, point out that the conditions that made life possible on Earth are so particular right so and so recent you know in terms of the history of the earth but also how dramatically things have changed you know that the that the moon used to be closer to the earth and that so that like even the number of hours in the day weren't the same you know i mean i i also find it very moving and um it it probes some of our our deepest held beliefs and questions them and kind of makes us have to really think about who we are, where we are, right. you know, how we fit into this wonderful and complex home, and, really. And and I find it, I mean, it's very strange because I love the people in my life. I love living the life I'm, you know, living. But, and it's not that I don't love humanity, but I also have this, to me, it's very reassuring that after we're not any longer 
the most dominant species on Earth, at, well, which will happen eventually, whether it's, you know, I don't know, whether it's tomorrow or a thousand years from now or 10,000 years. It's a short period of time. And one of the things that I find, you know, one of the facts that I, I love that sort of gives me that odd sort of sense of optimism for the Earth as a whole is that when the dinosaurs went extinct, they'd been basically the dominant group of animals on Earth for about, oh, I think it's about 160 million years. That's a long time. And then they went extinct, as we all know, because there was a whole set of different factors, including an asteroid. And they went extinct pretty quickly. When dinosaurs showed up on Earth, mammals were already here. And they were basically rat-like creatures that basically lurked around, like on the edges of, you know, where the dinosaurs lived and ate, you know, carrion or insects or whatever. And then flash forward 160 million years, and mammals are still there. And they've grown to be maybe ferret-sized. So in that period of time, mammals hardly changed at all. Dinosaurs leave the Earth, and within 15 million years, the first cats the first dogs, the first whales, the first camels, the first elephants, the first rhinos. There was this extraordinary flowering of diversity on this planet. It was just, it was almost like it was just waiting for the for the, the ecological niches to, to, to appear. And once they were there, evolution did what it did. It filled them. And I don't have any desire for there to be an apocalypse here. I don't, I mean, I wrote the book, <laughs> but it's not actually what I'm wishing for. But the idea that says that a million years from now, whenever it happens, that the earth will take the time to recover and then fill all the niches again, to me, that makes me kind of happy to know it's, you know, I'll never be there to see it, obviously. Yeah. But I, I, to me, that's that's one of the things that I actually makes me a little bit reassured about what, you know, about this, you know, we can't stop that from happening. So let, let's talk about time and the apocalyptic for a moment, because one of the things, so my original interest in the apocalyptic just came from a general observation that there was a lot of, let's call it apocalyptic stuff in popular culture. And that to me, that seemed like it was saying something about our general anxiety, you know, yeah. how we feel about what's going on. But then uh, you know, I had this discussion with Bernard McGinn, the theologian, right. and one of the things that emerged from that that I found fascinating was this idea, first of all, that the apocalyptic narrative is so baked into a Judeo-Christian culture, and that there is an implicit sense of time at play there, that there's a, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that that is very fundamental to our storytelling. But in your book, it doesn't work quite that way. I mean, it's apocalyptic in the sense that there's an end in the way that we think of it as really a disaster of huge proportions, but that doesn't really create an end. You know, it's yes. we we end with some kind of new indeterminate future. And so I like that aspect of your book, sort of a version on apocalypticism, where it's not really marked as a beginning and an end in the same way. Yeah, that's that's interesting to me, and I, I I found that fascinating in in the interview you refer to um, as well. I, I I like to end with a certain amount of like hope in and among the the sort of disaster. You know, it's kind of funny to have written books that have so much darkness in them and say, but I'm actually kind of a hopeful person. But I did also want to 
make it clear that part of the purpose of writing the book was to describe not only what happened to humans, but the earth itself. You know, I didn't do that explicitly. I didn't think this is the message I want to do. But when I put in this sort of glimpse of, of the future, you know, it's just an ongoing story, you know, and therefore I don't, I don't really see an end the same way that maybe some other people do. And I don't, certainly don't see a bleak end the way a lot of sort of post-apocalyptic fiction that I'm not so interested in anymore sort of portrays it, you know, endless grimy streets and, and, you know, endless rain or cold or, you know, heat or whatever. I don't, I don't see it that way because that seems more human centric to me and less earth centric. And, um, I'm, and I'm more interested in, in exploring a little bit what's happening to the, the planet and our role in it, rather than it just be about us and our end. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. Um, let me let me uh, suggest something, and you can tell me if this seems fair or not. I'm yeah. thinking, listening to you, that the sense of time you give us is more sort of earthbound and, in that sense, scientific than theological. Yeah. So that time is also experience from our perspective and our our perspective is limited in the world that you describe so that we don't know what's going to come after we just you know we're too small in that sense which uh i mean if we were to really draw from that we could you know pay attention to what the physicists tell us which is that time is in fact very much (laughs) fluctuates depending on where you are and, and things like that but um but just in a in a more sort of mundane sense you know our our sense of time is limited by where we are and so it goes for so much beyond our our experience does that make sense yes it does and it's 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 i mean it makes in a funny way it makes me smile because i think one of the reasons that we have so much trouble preparing for the future or dealing with things like climate change is that we're sort of trapped by our perspective that the only important timeline that truly exists is the one that includes us in it. It's not even, you know, our children or our grandchildren, not to say that we don't, a lot of us don't fight for this. I'm not being cynical here, but of course I think the 60 or 70 or 80 or I hope years that I get to live on this earth are the most important years to me because I'm here. And on some level, I think that it's, um, it is the perspective that tries at least to, to, to pull back sometimes from that perspective and, and take a broader one that is, um, was meaningful to me in the writing of, of these two books. So I'm, I'm eager to read the sequel now, um, and I'm guessing from the title that the slave maker ants were one of the inspirations for it. They come up in uh, invasive species as well. Can can you talk to me a little bit about the slave maker ants and how they serve <laughs> as a model for you? Yes, I'm laughing because I had to look that up too, of course, and watch. Uh, yeah, it's so fascinating. It's 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 the reason I'm laughing is that when I was five or six, and my older brother was three years older than me, so he was eight or nine. Our parents took us to on a trip to Europe. And I think we probably made it miserable for them because I'm sure their attitude was, we don't want to wait to travel. And of course, the downside was they had like sons who wouldn't eat in any of the food in any of the restaurants. We went to France and England and 
we're only interested in bugs and, and whatever. So I don't think uh, my parents told lots of stories about that trip afterwards. It wasn't usually to our benefit, but the reason I'm telling you this is one day my brother and I having read, I think my brother having read or seen a TV show about slave maker ants in which there are species of ants that get all their soldiers together and they go and they raid a nearby ant of a different species. I think usually specific victim species and they go in there and they kill the soldiers and they steal the larvae and the eggs and then they hatch them out. And those ants of another species become their, their workers, their slaves. And I think that's an extraordinary evolutionary adaptation. And so we had heard about it and then we went out and we were walking and we found a little colony. We're watching a little colony of small dark ants. And then my brother Jonathan noticed a ring around it, like a couple of feet away, that was these large ants, red ants, and then we watched a raid. And then we went back and told our parents, and they did not believe us. And I don't think they ever believed us. And they believed us. They didn't think of us as liars, but it's like, okay, you've just seen a documentary on this phenomenon, and you happen to walk outside and watch it <laughs> happen. Now, at a certain point within the last 10 years, if I remember, my brother Jonathan emailed me to say, I have a memory that we saw this. Do you have this memory too, or did I make it up? And I was like, I have the same memory. So I think we really did see it, even though I was very young, but it's stuck in my head, regardless of whether it was real or, or a dream. And so that's not something that's known specifically in, in wasp species, but the combination of the sort of parasitism that leads to that sort of domination and command and the idea of actual slave makers in another hive thing, you know, wasps answer basically wingless wasps is really fascinating to me. And that the, the, at the heart of slave makers, it's the idea to my mind that the earth isn't yet in balance. Like humans have been, to use the term I have been knocked down a few pegs. They're still there, but they're not exactly uh, the dominant species on earth, but the earth is still not on, in the balance. It needs to be the way it was after the dinosaurs disappeared when it could do whatever it wanted evolutionarily. And so that's what sort of gets at the heart of it is it's still, it's still knocked askew, just not by humans this time. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Joe Wallace. If you're looking for something to read that will allow you to travel vicariously while you wait to travel in real life, I recommend Invasive Species. Next time, which I promise will be soon, you won't have to wait a few months this time, I'll be talking to economist Mark Conte about the economist's perspective on the environment and how COVID is making us rethink how human behavior affects the environment. In the meantime, take care.